you have to invest in yourself. You know, a lot of people always say, go and talk to everybody else, but you have to know your weaknesses and you, you definitely have to work on those. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I've done. You know, I write down, uh, still to this day, I have a book in front of me, right? You know, and I write down, listen, uh, before every meeting that starts right on top. Uh, because, you know, as when you're starting off a business, you think you know everything, uh, you know, and one thing, one thing is, you know, learn to listen. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I had to learn for myself. So I would say you have to invest in yourself and, you know, find your weaknesses uh, and then and then work on them. That'll definitely go a long way in you being successful. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. You ever need help with yours? Just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast. Manish Vakil, and it was close as I can to pronounce the name right. And uh, he came to the U.S. when he was in sixth grade. I didn't speak any English. They had to actually take him back to fifth grade or because of the English barrier. Learned, I think, to speak most of his English by uh, by television and by going to school. Um, and then uh, when he got into high school, kicked things into gear and said, "Hey, I want to be successful. I want to get a good or good uh, education." So uh, got or graduated from high school, went to Rutgers did uh, finance and econ and then worked with wall street for a period of time, did some consulting as well. And then uh, was doing that for a period of time. I decided to go out and do his uh, own business about the, about a year before he got married, did have his own businesses, got into some franchises, bought some franchises, sold some franchises, ran those for a period of time, and then decided to start his own franchising company um, was actually with one of the pe- uh, previous people he'd worked with on a, a franchise gym, bought that from them, turned it around, built it up and been doing that along with a few other uh, franchises and growing things ever since. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast. No, I appreciate it, Devin. Thank you very much for having me. So I gave the quick 30 or 30 second run through to a much longer journey. So now yeah. take us back in time a bit to sixth grade and trying to figure out how to learn English, coming to the U.S., going to school and how that started there. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, well, that's a flashback. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I came here from India when I was 10 years old. I uh, came, as you mentioned, in sixth grade and they put me back in fifth because of the fact that I didn't know any English. Uh, very different world. Let's put it that way. Coming in from India, landing in JFK Airport. Uh, you know, and uh, and then suddenly, you know, you're thrust into uh, Manhattan and you're driving through and then and then you end up in Jersey of all places in the world. So, uh, you know, uh, to least to say it was a it was a shock, um, you know, looking at the world up at everybody and thinking, oh, my God, I don't understand what anyone is saying. And I'm in a complete different world. And now I'm going to be living here. Uh, so uh, but, you know, everything has its challenges, but also the positives that are there as well. Uh, so it was a nice part of exploring a new world. And that kind of gets me into where I am entrepreneur today, which, you know, allows me to kind of pivot and go into different areas. And, you know, as I said, I like to be, I'm only comfortable when I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> the minute I become comfortable, uh, it feels like that I'm becoming complacent. So, you know, mm-hmm. we started with that, uh, went into, I guess, elementary schools and high schools. And what, And as you mentioned, you know, the hard part, was, the, the best part was, I did get to watch a lot of TV, you know, so because the idea was to tell the parents, hey, this is the way I'm learning English, you know, so that was the positive side of it. Uh, <laughs> so, so that worked out. 
uh, from your, uh, you know, the one of the, I didn't mention to you was the TV shows was uh, wrestling was one of the things I used to watch when I was 10 <laughs> years old. It was a Saturday morning, 10 o'clock wrestle, you know, WrestleManias and, uh, and, and uh, I don't even remember that way back in the day, mm. uh, you know, Tito Santana to Macho Man and Hulk Hogan stuff. Uh, that was, that, that was some of the stuff that I used to watch too. Uh, but you know, it, it going, going into the business side of it, uh, it, it did definitely prepare you for what you are today. Uh, you know, in your past, you know, a lot of people say, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't do this. Uh, but all of those things build me to who I am today, you know, um, and, and that's a key part of it. No. And I think that definitely, you know, I, and I, a little bit later in life, I went into or uh, did a, a religious mission for my church when I was 19 and uh, I, I, I went to, to Taiwan. So it was Chinese and I had absolutely no idea. You do get like uh, 12 weeks of training and then you get over into Taiwan and you're like, that's not what they taught me. And I have no idea what they're saying. And you just have to yeah. dive in and get going. So I feel for you. And that's got to be a bit of an, a, a, even a, a more interesting uh, period of time when you're a little kid and you're saying, I have no idea what they're saying. I guess we'll, we'll start to figure it out. So now you, act, you, know, you start to acclimate to the language and the culture and kind of get in the U.S. And then went to high school, you know, kick things into gear got, uh, or get ready and go to college. You went to Rutgers and I think you said you did finance and econ. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah. So actually, I started off, it wasn't even that. I was supposed to go into dentistry. So I started doing the science classes, you know, and then you go in and you're like, hey, you took science in high school. Uh, but then you go into college and, you know, I did bio AP and all this stuff in high school. And it was like, yeah, it was great. Um, and, and it was nice and it was fun. Okay, great. Now you get in and you're doing it in college and you're like, yeah, I'm not really a fan of chemistry. <laughs> I don't really like physics. So the first year, luckily it didn't take me longer than that. And I took electives classes was mainly because I took econ because when I talked to the professor, they said, listen, everyone who goes into business, if you want to go into dental school, you're going to have, you're going to want something that's different than everyone else. Everyone who go applies is going to have chemistry, biology, any one of these majors. So he goes, go and do a business minor and that'll make you stand out, you know? Well, long behold, you know, I took that as a minor, which turned into a major after, because I didn't even bother applying for dental school because I couldn't stand the science, to be honest. Uh, mm. uh, but that's how I ended up in business, yeah. So now you, you, you come out of school and you graduate in business, you know, you say, okay, dentistry is not for me. It's not where I want to head. I'll go into the business, which... I'm right there with you. Business sounds a lot more fun, but you go and do that for a period of time. And, you know, I think you started out going or graduating and went to, to Wall Street. Is that right? Well, yes, yeah, so I was working during the school years. I used to work uh, throughout the day. Like you used to have the unpaid internships. And this is, you got to remember, it's internet boom time, right? This is 90, 95, 96, 97, 98. You know, you're talking about, you know, the, I graduated in 95. So right after that, that's when the, the internet is just going absolutely nuts, right? Founding of Amazon, Google, all of this stuff is happening. Uh, so I was working on, I was working at a couple of these different startups in Manhattan. Uh, and we used to work from like, you know, eight to four, come back, take the train back to, to college and then go to class from six to nine at night. Uh, it was the evening schooling. Uh, so, you know, three credits a day, you know, four, four days a week in a Saturday class, which was Man, that was torture. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, that was the idea. And and then I ended up on Wall Street afterwards, which was I was doing consulting for a company out of Boston, and it put me in a consulting job at Wall Street uh, for J.P. Morgan. So I was working on their project management side. 
um, which was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That's where the technology side comes in. You're working together with a lot of different areas. I even forgot the Pinnacle Alliance, I think is what it was called. It was like a combination of old Anderson Consulting and uh, JP Morgan and uh, Compu. I forgot the uh, Com CompuServe, I think was it? I'm not even sure the third company that was there. <laughs> but yeah, all these old companies that don't exist anymore. Uh, but it definitely teaches you a lot. And it was a lot of fun. You know, you're 20 something years old and you're walking into Wall Street it makes a huge difference than starting and not speaking any English, at, you know, uh, you know, mm. you know, 12 years, 10 years before that. No, I, I definitely, and that, you know, kudos to you that, hey, you kind of come from, hey, I didn't speak English, now I've gone to university, now I'm going to Wall Street, I'm working for some of the biggest firms, and, you know, and and uh, having that opportunity, that's a, that's a, certainly a great journey to have. Now, you you did Wall Street for a period of time, and then how, you know, what, what caused you to get out of Wall Street or to change directions or to go in a different direction? Well, so when I was there, uh, you know, originally I, I could never, you know, that's why I was in consulting. I had a hard time. And I listen, for, for what it's worth, you know, my parents probably thought this guy's going to, I don't know where he's going to end up or what he's going to do, because it was like, I couldn't hold on a job, I should say, uh, because I kept leaving jobs left and right. I always thought something was better. Something was new. Anytime something became mundane, I was like, you know, I have to move on. And it was like nine months to a year, year and a half, every place. Um, you know, that's what it was. So I kept moving around from job to job. So the consulting job in Manhattan, they ended. And then I ended up at places in New Jersey. Uh, I actually took a job, which was crazy, was uh, uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, believe it or not. Their management training program. And I have to give them credit, I'll be honest, because uh, leaving a job that I was paying so well, and when I ended up here, it was working with people. And it was literally cleaning cars, moving up to writing rental contracts and learning how to run a business. That's where I learned a lot. Hmm. You know, you're looking at income, you know, you're, you're working as an assistant manager now. I worked my way up to an assistant manager there. And I remember you're looking at, you know, your profit loss statements. How much did you make this month? You have to go do local marketing, go talk to body shops, go talk to insurance companies. You have to build up local business with local corporate people and go and set meetings with them. That's where I actually learned a lot of the hustling uh, it came from. And I have to give it, I mean, it's an amazing training program that I went through in real life. Uh, and that's what it was. And I didn't mind working, you know, six days a week. And I was working probably like 70 hours a week, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I definitely learned a lot from that job. And that's what got me into the business side of things of owning a small business. Well, that, that's got to be a pretty good transition between, you know, working for Wall Street to go working for, you know, yeah. car rentals. And yet I, you know, it's interesting as many, you know, some of those, they have to have really good programs because it's a competitive marketplace. You have to learn how to, to, you know, be better than the others. You have to know how to pitch yourself, you know, how to run the business and, you know, yeah. do profit loss and, you know, look at profit margins and return on investment and on and on. And it can make the big difference between whether or not it's profitable and a good business or whether or not it goes under. So, so now you go do that and you, you do that, you know, do car rentals for a period of time. And then, you know, how did you then get into the, the franchise aspect of starting to go into franchising or franchises and, and do that for the career? Well, I could have stayed with that company, right? And then I had an opportunity. I had a friend, couple of friends who were working for, uh, you know, ADP and this. I, I had another you know, corporate place, and they were like, you know, now you're thinking about. It. I was going out with my uh, now current wife, and it was like, you know, what are you going to do? We can't exactly stay at this job for a long time. Figure she will get a master's degree or something else at that point. Uh, and I was looking at that, and I didn't want to pay for it, right? So the best thing to do is go get a job with a company that's going to allow you to get a master's degree. So I ended up with uh, ADP. Uh, automatic data processing, uh, obviously one of the biggest payroll companies now uh, that's out there. And, you know, I, I was working for them and doing my master's degree 
at Stevens Institute uh, on the on the weeknights and weekends. Um, so because they were paying for the classes there, so I did it in project management, um, and I was doing all the uh, major classes. I actually never completed it to be honest uh, because of the fact that I was like, you know, afterwards electives were too expensive, and I didn't want to pay a thousand dollars a credit. Great school, Stevens, by the way, but <laughs> that's what it was. Um, mm. And I did all the major classes, and and the idea was actually to go and you know, open a business or work in a business where I can start my own business. That was a thought process. Now, how was I going to get there? Um, I looked up, at, you know, grants and uh, SBA loans and did all those things. Um, you know, so once we got, uh, I talked to the, my girlfriend and wife, and that's all, that was the plan uh, to get into that area. Um, mm. And hopefully we figured, we'll figure out, you know, at that point, you know, 27, 26 years old, you're like, hey, conquer the world. There's something will work out. You know, that's the, I, I kind of miss that nowadays being 44, uh, that, you know, I don't, <laughs> now you tend to think a little bit more without, before acting. Uh, so, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's how I ended up in, in business, the original idea. So, and, and so now how, you know, so you're, you did that. And I think, you know, going through getting the education, finding somebody else will pay for it is all the better. So you're not having to go into it and then only <laughs> taking the classes that, you know, really only are applicable because, you know, I always used to joke and I got the, the MBA and I did that at the same time I was doing the law degree, but I always say, you know, I'd walk over from the law school and it would be, you know, analytics and tearing pieces apart and looking at court opinions and then walk over and everything seemed in the NBA seemed about 50% of it seemed fluffy and 50% of it seemed useful. And so I was, yeah. you know, always felt like I was double paying for what I really needed because I only really found about half a useful. So I think that's, you know, great that you just pay for what you need, so to speak, or get someone else to pay for what you need. So now you do that for a period of time, you're getting, you're coming up, getting married soon. How did you, you know, what made you decide to go for franchises and how did you find your first franchise you wanted to get into? Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that you look for originally is, you know, what is your passion in, right? Uh, but I didn't do that. Uh, I, I tell everyone to do that now. Uh, I wish, you know, I, I did that. I, you know, uh, it turned out to be what I was good at. But, um, you know, originally I looked at it and I said, you know, what is a recession? Which one is, what do people spend money on the most? Uh, what are things that are up and coming? Uh, so, you know, I looked at, you know, uh, and I didn't have kids, obviously. We just got married. Uh, and then we're looking and we're like, you know, looking at kids' businesses. Because we figured it's uh, from an overhead perspective, how much is it going to cost? By the way, half of the stuff that I calculated was wrong. <laughs> uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, but, uh, you know, I got very lucky in certain places. Um, but yeah, I, I went and started in the kids area because I figured, you know, everyone always spends money on kids, no matter what. Uh, mm. and you know, luckily so far 16, 17 years in now, uh, proven to be true, uh, which is very good. Uh, so, uh, so that's how I went about it. Uh, I wouldn't suggest anybody else do that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but that's what I certainly did. And, um, and I had to pivot when I bought the first franchise, uh, you know, what, what, the, what I heard from the franchisor was, you know, go and open up this, you can have this many kids in it, you can make this much money. And, you know, you're kind of, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, as they say, and mm. you're thinking it's going to look and it's going to look amazing. And I realized early on, luckily, uh, that what I built and the place I rented for business was not going to be able to survive if it wasn't, uh, you know, with, with the model that I had. Uh, so I went ahead and actually took, uh, I had two locations. So I sold the back of it off uh, and, and then opened up another business over there, which was complimentary. It was a, it was a tutoring center I found about five months in. And that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so I had a, ste a STEM class business, a STEAM class business. And then I had a, I had a learning center business uh, combination. So they kind of fed each other. So it definitely supplemented the rent and the staffing. 
And that's what helped me to survive. And I had to learn a very quickly that, you know, what you see and what you hear is not what you get when you actually start doing it. Uh, you start getting into business itself. So everything, as you said, in like an MBA, right? 50% is theory based, 50% is fluff. Mm. And you know that you find out that fluff is there very quickly. So, uh, so that's how I ended up in that. And it was a very hard lesson right from the get go. Um, you know, life, right from the get go, I had a full head of hair at that time. I still remember. <laughs> and within like nine months, 10 months, you're looking at it and you're just like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm like, you don't realize the stress that you take on. Mm. Um, so, and I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, no, definitely. There, it's always interesting. You know, I think everybody has this, you know, misconceived, probably because of movies and television, or at least that's what I'll blame it on them. Yeah. Oh, you go and start your own business and it's wonderful. You work two hours a day and then you go and you have lunches and vacations and everything works out perfect and you're rich and it's just, you know, just go yeah. do it. And there's a lot of rewarding things about doing your own business. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the same. It's not this life where you work a couple hours no stress everything's perfect now it's a lot of hard work and a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of stress and it, it definitely yeah. you know you have to have the the grit in order to stick with it to ever make a success or go of it and even then it's still far from certain that it's ever going to be successful so i'm definitely agreeing with you on that on that front so now as you go do it and you, you know see so you you got into you got into the the kids business and because you're having a kid and looks like it may be you know at least recession resistant i don't know if there's anything recession proof but at least resistant yeah resistant correct yeah now you get that you know you get into that for a period of time now i think at some point you decided to sell the franchise or get out of the franchise or ship to go yeah. somewhere else help me understand yeah. that so, or remind me that yeah so what i did is i opened the first one and i had the learning center as well but i was running it on a daily basis so you know i'm cleaning the bathrooms i'm you know i'm the one sweeping the floors and then I'm also the director, I'm all the sales, you know, as you say, you're CEO, but you're chief everything officer. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no such thing as just sitting in a corner office. It doesn't work that way, you know? Mm. So, you know, I'm the accountant, I'm, you're the marketing person, you're everything. Um, and that's what it was. So I did that. And then, um, you know, uh, so I opened the businesses in 2006, seven. Uh, and then I had the, I opened the gym in, uh, in seven middle. Uh, so it was literally within a year, I had three of these businesses running and and lucky enough, you know, obviously wife is doing her uh, degree and she's get, she's finishing her degree and become a nurse practitioner while simultaneously working as a registered nurse. Uh, and then I'm running the businesses on the side. And, you know, going into it afterwards, what I realized was my life was changing, right? So, you know, now you're married. Now, if you're having kids and whatnot, your time commitment's going to shift. You need mm. to be able to say that, hey, uh, you know, you, you're not going to be able to come to work every single day anymore. So are you able to hire somebody to run it? But is the business that you bought, it's a franchise, do they allow you to do that? Can, uh, forget about the fact if they allow you or not, is this, is it, you know, does it generate enough capital for you to hire someone and still take money out? Because at the end of the day, you're working there, you're not paying anyone else. So you're taking the salary at least, right? So mm -hmm. now if you're not working there, where's that salary going to go? You have to give it to someone else. Or, and are they going to do the same job you do? So all these questions come up. So I had the gym that was running and I set the gym up to be kind of in, uh, you know, a semi, uh, uh, kind of, you know, I just oversaw, oversaw the operations and I had a director already running it and everything else like that. So I decided to sell the, the learning center and the, uh, and the, uh, uh, both the learning center and the STEM program in 2009. And my, uh, so I was going to also have twins in 2010. So about six, seven months before. Uh, the twins were born in February. I sold the business. Uh, so then wife was still, you know, obviously working. She couldn't tell her to quit her job. Uh, she just became a nurse practitioner, um, you know, a year before. So that's, that's how I actually got into it and, and kept the gym business uh, because the other two 
didn't have enough income in order to, uh, you know, kind of hire a full-time director uh, mm -hmm. in, in order to run it. So uh, that, that, was, that was an interesting time frame. So you learn different things as you go along. And, and the gym definitely survived that part of it. And we kept it. And the little boys loved the gym. Uh, you know, uh, they, they, they took their first steps, you know, you're walking in, take them to the office with me, uh, mm. some of the days and the staff would sit there and play with them all day long music classes, you know, started walking at seven months and nine months because they had so much exercise in the gym, which was mm. insane. But, uh, but it was a lot more fun. It was definitely a lot of fun. No, it sounds like a, a kid's, uh, a, a great kid's playground for growing up. That's got to be a fun place for them to, to grow up and learn a bit. So that, that sounds fun. Now you did that, you know, I think he's ran it for three or four years or so. And then he decided, yeah. okay, it's, I've done enough franchises for other people. I want to do my own thing or start my own franchise and kind of take that bulls by the horn. Is that about right? Or kind of what, and follow on to kind of what caused that transition? What made you shift from kind of so doing somebody else's franchise to wanting to do your own? Well, you know, I ran into a lot of issues. So I had the learning center. I had the, the, the tutoring franchise. And when I had the tutoring franchise, I opened, I owned about six, seven of them myself in different states in partnership together by myself. And I was also an area developer for them. So I opened locations. I helped them open locations in multiple different states with, through people that I knew uh, through the other franchise system. So I had a lot of experience in going and assisting them, which was, you know, field operations, going and talking to them. How are you running the business? What are you doing for marketing? How do you find a location? What are you doing for build out architects, all of these things. So it was, a, you know, it was, you know, working MBA essentially for in franchising is what I was getting or opening and starting small businesses. So when I was doing that for a long time and, uh, I had the tumbles, uh, JW tumbles location was called at the time and JW tumbles was bought out by another company, uh, out of New York. And they wanted to, and they, they acquired it for, for uh, essentially they were acquiring the hiring and the pipeline for sales. It was a great company out of New York that was there and it was called Kidville, um, public information. So it's in our franchise document anyway. So I'll name it, uh, you know, and, uh, and when you bought the company and they're great people there, but you know, they had two different brands. They had a Kidville brand coming out of New York, really high flying, doing amazingly well, a lot bigger, you know, a lot more expensive, obviously to build. Uh, they were way bigger uh, in size, um, but Tumbles was a nice quaint little small business, which was running great. And I had it running for about, you know, three years at that time when they took over, uh, two years actually, by the time they took over. And they asked us to switch the brand to Kindle if we wanted to. It was an option. And I said, no, because I already paid for this franchise. I already built it. I didn't want to put more money into changing everything. Um, mm. But, you know, when a new company comes on, you know, you have two different companies, you're operating under the same umbrella. You know, it, 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 you're going to take a backseat in certain areas, obviously, right? Because they're going to focus on the main business. And rightfully so, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So, you know, they did that. And then I ran the business for about three, four years. And I said, you know, it's about time now to move on to a certain area where we ran it absentee for about five years and it was doing, it was doing well. So we could, and I moved it to a new location because our first lease was up uh, because I ran the first one for, uh, for, for five years. And then I moved it to a new location um, for the next three. And when I moved it, obviously our expenses dropped quite a bit. So our revenue went up, you know, our profit went up a little bit because of the fact of our overhead went down. Uh, so I said, it was a good time to sell. And when I sold it, I didn't know what I was going to do. So, you know, I, in the terms of saying, I don't know what type of business I was going to start or franchise business or anything else. So I said, you know, we'll look and see what happens. So I went to thank actually the CEO of the, of the company Kidville and the president at the time, and just to tell them thank you. And they told me, hey, they were, you know, trying to figure out what to do with Tumbles, uh, JW Tumbles at the time. And I said, oh, well, you're interested in selling it. 
And that's how it actually came about because I figured it would save a lot of time. And I don't have to tell you how much legal fees can be to start a new uh, and uh, do all the work from trademarks to, you know, systems to the documents for the Federal Trade Commission, the FTDs uh, and whatnot. So that, that's how I got into it. It was by pure luck. I mean, it was a chance meeting and a chance email. Mm-hmm. No, and, th- and that, you know, hey, it's interesting how sometimes as much as as much as anything, starting a business and, and you know, going in a different direction is, is by chance or just happens to be, hey, this is what I came into, stumbled across, opportunity came across and looked too good to pass up type of a thing. And, you know, and I definitely get, you know, by the time you have to figure out the franchise name, you have to figure out the franchisees, you have to do the legal documents, you have to get it up and going. Even if it's not ideal, it can short circuit or shortcut a, a bit of time that you'd otherwise have to put in if you were to start something from scratch. So it definitely makes sense. So now you purchase that. And I think as we chatted a bit before the podcast, you know, you purchase the franchise, went that direction, you kind of then went to went back to basics, so to speak, rebuilt it from the ground up yeah. and kind of look and said, okay, this has a lot of, you know, a lot of potential, needs a lot of work, and we're going to go in this direction. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so I was a franchisee for so long, right? So, you know, you look at it and you go, you know, there's some good, obviously, that come from all these brands and learned a lot. But I always looked at it and said, as a franchisee, what else do I need? You know, what, what do I need to be successful? So all those things that were missing, I wanted to make sure I ran a company and I started my own company. I wanted to do it from that aspect of what do the franchisees need? Where can we provide the best support? What systems do they need? What makes it easiest for them? Uh, that's the that's the approach we've taken. You know, the biggest one I did was, you know, revenue-wise, you know, you pay for rent, you know, obviously 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? 365. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a business, when I was running a learning center, you know, you're operating it or, you know, a tutoring center, you're operating it three or four days a week for three hours a day. But the rest of the day, what are you doing with it? Nothing. You know, on the weekends, you're not doing parties, you're not doing anything else. It's empty. So, you know, I said, how does this make any sense? You're not getting the most out of utilization out of the space that you're renting. So when I, when I started with Tumbles, you know, we only had the gym program. So we added the STEAM curriculum, but we did it from a bodily kinesthetic standpoint where it's applied mechanics, right? You actually go and learn something in the classroom and then it's not just theory based. You actually go and practice it in the gym. So we added this curriculum in. So you are running it now after school for older kids as well. So you already have the market from the younger kids coming to the gym. So I figured, you know, as a franchise owner, the one thing you don't want to go and ask your franchisor is, Hey, I have all this dead time. What do I do with it? You know? So we added a mobile, we have a mobile program. We have the steam program. We have the gym program. Uh, you know, you have birthday parties. So you, when you do all this stuff, you're going to have enough revenue to be sustainable. So if one part goes down, the other one is still there. So you're not going to be completely underwater when things do go wrong. Uh, like, you know, right now during COVID, you know, a lot of our franchisees went ahead and did, you know, virtual classes, outdoor classes, outdoor birthday parties, to-go classes, all these different things. And because you couldn't do a lot of classes in person. Uh, so that, that does help. Uh, so that was the idea. That was the idea to do things where from a franchisee's being in their shoes, living it for so many years, and then knowing what's hopefully missing and hopefully I'm doing it right. Uh, that, 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 and, that's, that, and that's the hope. No, and I and I I'm right there with you. Interesting, you know. That's kind of you know. I always like uh, I love listening to the you know kind of we took it and what are what are franchises doing wrong or we don't like or what otherwise would we change and what can we make better and improve and that's a lot of you know when I take now the legal industry different industry but kind of the same thing of there are a lot of things I think you know intellectual property patents and trademarks so you can do better you can do more efficient you can update and you know sometimes you fall into the trap of you just you know you 
you do things because that's the way it's always been done and not necessarily mm-hmm. because what makes sense and to take that and actually say no I'm not going to do it just because that's the way that it's always been done I'm going to do what makes sense gives you a lot of opportunities to grow and to expand the business so definitely kind of fun to hear you know that journey along the the franchise route as well so that kind of brings us up into where you're at today now kind of you know as we transition or as we kind of now are up to today I always have two questions as we kind of get towards the end of the podcast and just as a reminder for the listeners, well, we are going to hit on the, the one bonus question, talk a little bit about intellectual property. So make, make sure to stay tuned for that. But for the normal two questions, we'll jump to those now. The first question is along the journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what'd you learn from it? Uh, trusting when someone tells you from a company without writing anything down. So from it comes into the legal side. So right up your uh, alley there, my friend, um, was, you know, a company told me and I terminated a franchise and I was done. They didn't sign the actual one back to me and said, oh, we'll just get it back to you tomorrow. Uh, and we closed the location. They came back afterwards and tried to sue me for a lot of different things, which had nothing to do with me, you know, mm-hmm. um, in all different areas. So, you know, what happens in the mistakes is, and this happened when I sold the first franchise. Uh, that was the one I'm talking about. In 2009, I sold it to someone and I signed it over. And then uh, I had to end up suing that person because of the fact that, they didn't uh, live up to their end of the bargain. You know, uh, mm. th- that was issue. And that was in 2000 and, uh, 2009, the first one I sold because I took a note on the business. I didn't take the money up. Uh, I didn't take the money up front because I knew the business was doing well. So I figured they could pay me back. So I mm. uh, shouldn't have done that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you live and learn and you go mm. from there. Uh, so uh, so that, that was a pretty bad mistake. No, and it's one it's one that, you know, some of the worst mistakes you make are the ones you learn the most from. And, hey, I hire the experts that know what they're doing and I'll get the mentorship or the guidance for the things that I should or shouldn't be thinking I can do on my own definitely is one to learn from. So now as we jump to the second question, which is if you're talking now to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah, and there's definitely a lot, right? The first thing I would say is that you have to invest in yourself. You know, a lot of people always say, go and talk to everybody else, but you have to know your weaknesses and you, you definitely have to work on those. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I've done. You know, I write down, uh, still to this day, I have a book in front of me, right? You know, and I write down, listen, uh, before every meeting that starts right on top, uh, because, you know, as when you're starting off a business, you think, you know, everything, uh, you know, and one thing, uh, one thing is, you know, learn to listen. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I had to learn for myself. So I would say you have to invest in yourself and, you know, find your weaknesses uh, and then and then work on them. That'll definitely go a long way in you being successful. Mm, no, it definitely makes sense. So I like that. Uh, I like that. And investing in yourself definitely pays uh, some of the best dividends. So makes makes perfect sense. And so. Well, now as we wrap up, and again, we'll jump to the, to the bonus question in just a minute, but for all the, the normal listeners that don't want to listen to IP, and I don't blame them, sometimes you just want to get on with your day, but for, the, <laughs> for as we wrap up, you know, um, if people want to reach out, they want to find out more about, uh, you know, your franchises, the things you're building, they want to be a franchisee, they want to be a client, they want to be a customer, they want to be an investor, they want to be an employee, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out, find out more? Well, uh, www.tumbles.net, T-U-M-B-L-E-S dot N-E-T, uh, or and Manish at tumbles.net. Either one of those, uh, you'll be able to reach me from there. So you go onto the website, you'll have our sales team contact me and let me know, or you can reach me directly. So either one of those will work. All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to, to reach out and find out more and uh, get more information and uh, go check out Tumbles. So 
Well, as we wrap up, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and like to be a guest on the podcast, love to have you. Just go to inventiveguest.com and apply and be on the show. Two more things as listeners. One, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, make sure to leave us a review so new people can find out about our awesome episodes as well. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. So now, as now we uh, as we wrap up the normal episode, it's always fun to, to do the bonus question, uh, switch gears a bit, talk a little bit about intellectual property um, because you know it's one thing that I definitely am passionate about and definitely have a fun time talking about. So with that, I'll switch gears a bit and turn it over to you to ask your, uh, your top intellectual property question. You know, I'm looking at the different areas. I know I hear about this Madrid Protocol all the time, mm-hmm. right? And then I'm trying to figure out and look at, so the reason I asked the question, let me preface actually, um, we, just signed a, we just signed a letter of intent. We're going into Ghana, uh, in, in, into Africa. We, we're already, we already have a signed deal in the Middle East, and now we're going into Asia as well. And the Asian countries and the African countries, uh, for that matter, I mean, the patent law just seems extremely vague. I don't know how to, I, I don't know how else to word it. Uh, and I, I'm having a hard time at the end of the day and be perfectly honest is just kind of figuring out which is the best approach because everyone keeps telling me, you know, I'm looking at it and they're like, well, you can do the Madrid protocol on this, but then it doesn't apply. I don't know if there's another way to do it. Do you recommend having an attorney here and then having a local attorney there? Or do you go directly to the company there, uh, you know, in the local country that you're going into, but then you don't, you don't know them. So I feel like there's just, I mean, I can ask you a hundred questions about this as you can tell. So yep. any, you know, so so this is where I'm at right now. That's what's going through my mind. Um, yeah, so that's the best way to approach this. Yeah, there's a, a few things, and you're probably I'll preface it with I'll probably give you a biased answer because you know that's I can only give you an answer based on the biases that I have, um, but. I, I always tend to like, and you know, when I've done, I've done, I've been on both sides. So I've ran startups, small businesses, continue to be involved with them. I've also done the IP side and it's, it's generally nice to have a cohesive or a central place for someone that manager manages all of your IP in the sense that, yeah, if you go to a U.S. attorney and say, Hey, I need to do Madrid protocol, you know, I need to file a PCT application or a EU patent application, or I need to file for multiple trademarks via Madrid or any of those natures, they can generally manage all that for you. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to hire local counsel counsel in that given area, but they're still going to understand the overall picture. And so what gets difficult is if you don't have that centralized person, most, you get so many dis- first people you're working with they don't understand do you have a u.s one that you can have priority to do you what is the protocol do you already have a u.s patent that you're doing it or i do do you do a pct application that you're wanting to go international and kind of having a lot of that cohesive strategy in that centralized location generally gives you a lot better counsel and then they can also have an idea what are you seeing in other countries that may affect the prosecution here so let's say you filed for a patent in china or europe or wherever and you were saying hey here are the grounds for rejection now we can go now when we get that goes grounds for rejections in another country we can already have anticipated see if our arguments work if they're convincing what other art is out there and so kind of having that centralized location where you can have strategy they can see what's going on with the or throughout all the portfolio and make better decisions is generally where i would start out with or at least for my biased answer because it gives you a lot more cohesion and a lot more leveraging of the knowledge you're getting across the whole portfolio as opposed to just breaking it out and then nobody having that centralized knowledge does that make sense 
Yeah, it definitely does. I like that aspect of it. So you have one place where you can go to as opposed to having seven different firms, I guess, that you're talking to in seven different countries. No, extremely helpful. That, that definitely does help. So I think sticking with the U.S. area is going to be the best course of action on that one. <laughs> and the other one that's nice is, you know, is, is counterintuitive as it sounds a bit. And some people saying, hey, but if I have a U.S. firm, I'm now having to double pay because I'm having to pay an attorney in the U.S. and they're also having to pay in Europe. But most of the time I find that you get more cost savings because you're now having somebody that already knows a portfolio that's gone through it and can give or you know, reduce the cost of having so many back and forth and having to give, you know, give them direction. So, Hey, I just gave direction to the European or or European counterpart or foreign associate on this matter. China is about the same one. I'll give them the similar direction. So yes, I'm going to have to do both of them. I'm the intermediary, but I'm giving a direction such that we're not, they're not having to come up to speed and use reuse the same amount of time to do, make them figure out the same thing. So it ends up actually reducing the cost and giving a better overall product because you're not having everybody that's having to figure out and having different or coming up to speed all the time. No, that's a great point because, you know, I'm not an expert, like I just said beforehand, right? Like, you know, know your weaknesses, right? And that's definitely a weakness for me. So for me to become an expert in terms of what the best approach is rather than utilizing it, that's very helpful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast. Always fun to talk a little about intellectual property. And if, if you have any other questions or the listeners or the audience has any questions, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us, chat, always happy to discuss anything on your mind. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thank you again, Manish, for coming on the podcast. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And wish the next Likewise, week of journey you. even better than the last. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Devin, for having me.